Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Twelfth Night Podcast. I'd like to introduce some of the other members of the podcast. We will start first with Bridget Riley Beauchamp. Bridget, will you tell, please tell everybody who you are? Sure. My name is Bridget Riley Beauchamp. I am the founding artistic director of Pulling Buttonhole Theater Company. We're a small company located just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In addition to the work that we do with contemporary plays and um, underheard artists, we also do an original practices Shakespeare every summer. It's a co-production with a group called Bright Invention, which is a um, long form improv troupe here in the area and a couple of other local arts companies. And I'm thrilled to be here. Twelfth Night is my favorite Shakespeare play, and uh, Olivia and Viola are my two favorite women in Shakespeare. Wonderful, and we are so glad that you're here. Uh, John Bean? Hi, I'm John Bean, and uh, first, I'm just so glad that you said Olivia and Viola in that order, because you always hear it the other way, <laughs> and I'm right there with you on that, Olivia. I, we, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. My name's John Bean, and uh, kind of long history with Shakespeare. I'm uh, currently located on the Oregon coast and I uh, do occasionally perpetrate some theatrics upon the land here, have run uh, some Shakespeare festivals, some uh, production companies, directed some 20 plus productions of Shakespeare, acted in a similar amount. And Twelfth uh, Night's definitely one of those that every time you return to it in life, it unfolds for you. It gives you a, another wonderful treasure trove of experiences and uh, nuances and ideas about not just the theater and the performance but of life there's some uh, such um, amazing resonances that you carry with you after a, any any kind of slightly effectual effective production of this play it's that that melancholy that time thing the idea of love and that magic the whole thing for me just really are something that even when i think of you know begin to think of the words 12th night and think of starting to think about the feeling of that play it just it just brings me right in there every time so I'm, I'm so excited to talk about it with you guys and, and learn <laughs> well i'm so thrilled that you two are here with me i'm rachel onstad of the rose city shakespeare company and i produced 12th night and read 12th night and basically been obsessed with 12th night since grad school and obsessed with shakespeare before then 
And uh, about a year ago, we produced an audio version of Twelfth Night with some local voiceover actors, and we had a blast. The problem with Twelfth Night, as many people realize, is that it's a very complicated play, and that's where actually a lot of the humor comes. It's one of the precursors of, you know, modern farces, like like noises off or something like that, where there's a lot of complicated love affairs going on, lots of different layers, lots of different class struggles. And I have had attempts where I tried to explain the plot of Twelfth Night to people who were really interested. And even I got bogged down in it, even when I was in the middle of directing and producing it. And so I really wanted to make these podcasts to help people kind of understand what the heck is going on in this play so that they can enjoy it as much as we do. And hence, this podcast was born. We're going to be commenting on each of the scenes in the play, and we will try not to spoil anything for you. So this is the introductory episode of this particular series. And so we're going to be kind of preparing you for the next scene and at the same time explaining what happened in the last scene without spoiling for you what's happening in the next scene. <laughs> but there's enough going on that I think uh, it's, it's going to be helpful for people who are coming new to the play. At least we certainly hope it will be helpful for you all. And then as we're discussing things, we're going to come across certain breakout topics that are just too exciting and create too much depth for one of these little scene summaries. And we'll be recording those as separate episodes. So every once in a while, you'll hear me say something like, let's put a pin in that or let's make an episode of that. And the odds are good that that will in fact end up as an episode later on. We want to set the scene for our listeners, and we're going to do so without giving too much away, as I mentioned earlier. And as the scene opens, we are in the palace of Duke Orsino. And how, Bridget, how would you describe Orsino? If you were casting Orsino, what would you be looking for? What kind of, not necessarily physical looks, but what kind of emotional tone? <laughs> um, well, to borrow from the Youngs, uh, Orsino is a bit of a fuck boy. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, he's um, he's very confident in his own abilities and attractions. Um, he's very confident in his place in the world and he revels in being miserable because he can't have the one thing that he wants that he... Mm -hmm. how about you john what would you be looking for um that's a yeah, great question I, you know for me when i've done it so the first place i usually like to go to with that is what is the effect that they have on the other characters and what are the other characters mm -hmm. saying about that person so what's the requirement you know what is the thing that i need and so and then i when i'm casting i'm you know it's it's with orsino it's kind of some of those classic shakespearean uh, you know tropes you need the language you need the ability to to orate and all that but you've got to have that x factor that thing that draws you in that would 
allow Violet to be so universally just completely attracted to him that would allow it to pierce Olivia's armor, that would, um, you know, be a leader of men, that would inspire the, the, the servants of, you know, the, the tower, the castle and all of that. And that, that also um, would be someone of a formidable nature, man to man with someone like an Antonio, or, you know, they, we've got a sense that there's some kind of battle thing or something that he's capable of somewhere back there. Um, and also I just, you know, as a viewer, I want to, I want my breath taken away, you know? And so if that's, if, if that's how, um, I know Viola's going to feel, then that's what, you know, that's what I'm looking for. And so it's, it's always a question of like, uh, what do you have immediately? What are you seeing immediately? And then what can you get to? And so I don't like to start with the, what can I get to? I really want to try to get it right there, you know? And I, I'm very arrogant about my abilities a lot of times, it's, you know, in the directing room and, and all of that, much to my chagrin, I'm sure, but uh, demise. But, uh, but yeah, I really, really do try to, to widen the net and find the, the whenever possible and find the, this, that X factor thing. So. so it sounds like you're looking for a high charisma score, as we would say. In the... A high charisma score? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> As tabletop gamers would say, you're looking for a very high charisma score. And, and, and that effects on, you know, when he enters a room, you know, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's that, you know, the, the way, you know, when a king or a duke or, you know, someone just mm -hmm. enters a room, it's an entirely different thing when, than when we've got, you know, uh, a fool or, a, you know, the servant and this kind of thing. And not just in the, in the physical, you know, mannerisms, but in, in the, you know, does this guy move armies when his hand mm -hmm. moves do people move with him when he mm -hmm. you know does he command attention and all that as well so all of those things but of course it's like a a, a wish list that mm -hmm. you know <laughs> no but i think that's a really i think that's a really good point and i think that probably speaks very closely to the way that shakespeare's audiences would have perceived a duke orsino so we know that he needs to be reasonably charismatic. He needs to have that quality of leadership so that the audience can see him not only as a love interest for, well, we're spoiling things a little bit here, but not only as a love interest for other characters in the play, but also when women do reject him, for it to seem like a crazy thing that they're doing as a subversive decision even because if we open in on our sino and the audience goes eh, <laughs> <laughs> then it makes other characters actions a lot more difficult to parse and so yeah casting is a big issue with our sino so as we come in on this first scene orsino is in his palace and he has some of his attendants nearby and they are about to bring him some news and we will go in from there
If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that, surfeiting, the appetite may sicken, and so die. That strain again. It had a dying fall. Oh, it came o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor. Enough. No more. Tis not so sweet now as it was before. Oh, spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, that, notwithstanding thy capacity, receiveth as the sea naught enters there, of what validity and pitch soe'er, but falls into abatement and low price, even in a minute. So full of shapes is fancy, that it alone is high fantastical. Will you go hunt, my lord? What, curio? The heart? Why, so I do, the noblest that I have. Oh, when mine eyes did see Olivia first, methought she purged the air of pestilence. That instant was I turned into a heart, and my desires, like fell and cruel hounds, ere since pursue me. Uh, how now? What news from her? So please, my lord, I might not be admitted. But from her hand may do return this answer. The element itself, till seven years' heat, shall not behold her face at ample view. But like a cloistress, she will veiled walk and water once a day her chamber round, with eye offending brine. All this to season a brother's dead love, which she would keep fresh and lasting in her sad remembrance. Oh, she that hath the heart of that fine frame? To pay this debt of love, but to a brother? How will she love when the rich golden shaft hath killed the flock of all affections else that live in her when liver, brain, and heart, these sovereign thrones, are all supplied and filled? Her sweet perfections with one self-king. Away, before me, to sweet beds of flowers. Love thoughts lie rich when canopied with bowers. Welcome back. We've all listened to Act One, Scene One of The Twelfth Night, or what you will. At the beginning of the scene, we have Duke Orsino in his palace, and he is, to put it most simply, moping. And he is moping because he is in love, and the object of his affection, Olivia, does not return his feelings. And so his first lines of the play, just so beautiful and really speak to the whole rest of the play. I, I don't know if this is true in every Shakespeare play, but it's certainly true in many of them, that the first few lines give you a real key about what's important in the rest of the play. John, would you read those for me? Just those. Sure. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of that surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die. So, what Arsino is saying there, in the most flowery language possible, is that if he listens to enough sappy music, 
maybe he'll get sick of thinking about love and will be able to do something else with his life. And I really feel for Orsino in this situation. I think most of us have been hopelessly, madly in love with somebody who did not return those affections, or maybe they weren't even appropriate to start with, but we feel rejected, we are rejected, and we just want to die. And I think that the juxtaposition that he's basically, he's a man who has everything except Olivia. So as we're going through, you know, that that very first set of lines in the play for Arsino, it's such a beautiful speech and it's so poetical. And it's hard to believe that anybody would turn him down Unless, of course, they weren't attracted to whining fuckboys, as Bridget (laughs) said. You can tell I've played Olivia. (laughs) Oh, I've played Olivia. That's fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. So, and then uh, Kirio, his assistant, asks, uh, will you go hunt, my lord? Because this would be a nice, active, sort of assertive... I wouldn't necessarily say manly because women did it too, but it was definitely an action, something to get you out of your your doldrums. Something that I think is important to remember in, in all of Shakespeare is the medical theory at the time was that there were four humors, or rather four states of being, and that people would tend to be one of those. And then the object of being healthy was to balance it so that all your humors were in balance. I I think we can safely say that Orsino is a tad melancholy here. <laughs> you know, I think that's interesting because Orsino is melancholy and it's traditionally, I think, totally accurate, right? Um, that's the picture we have of him, you know, languid, lounging and this kind of thing. And it's there's certainly that quality there. I think it it's also important to, especially in this opening bit, establish his comic sensibility. He's got a huge comic muscle that's uh, uh, mm. being ex- exercised here, as well as for my dollar twelfth night immediately. Just in this monologue, gets us launched into, and it depends on direction and it depends on how the actor wants to take it and what you're after in a production, but. For my dollar, there's a almost Hamlet level exploration going on in Orsino's trip through the land of love. The second that there's mm-hmm. a new facet, you know, or that he's faced with a new experience, either rejection, acceptance, the new information of the day, it's not even just how he feels about it, but he applies it to, you know, uh, oh, spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, that notwithstanding thy capacity, receiveth as the sea. Not enters there of what validity of pitch soever, but falls into abatement and low price, even in a minute. And then when Curio comes in with this kind of gag here, this fun thing, um, he turns it right back to it. Why so I do? And he's exploring this land, you know. So there is that, there's a melancholy, but I love seeing an active Orsino that is, that's got a princely almost or, or a uh, curious quality there because and it helps right with the uh, attractions that we need later mm-hmm. you know to to have if, if there's if we start seeing oh this guy you know we want him to go explore this you know kind of a little bit but there's built into the language here just in this first bit right will you go hunt my lord what curio uh curio's line is finished right there by mm-hmm. the duke right the the 
iambic pentameter. Will you go hunt my lord with curio, right? It's we're finishing the line. The heart, why so I do the noblest that I have. And that gag in there of the heart of the deer, but also the heart, obviously, of the, of the mm-hmm. chest. Um, but the finishing of the other line. So we've got, will you go hunt my lord? What curio? And then the heart. And then why so I do the noblest that I have? Whole other line. Mm-hmm. So will you go hunt my lord? What curio? Is one line. Then we have the heart. Then we have eight more beats. Mm-hmm. And so that those eight more beats right there. And I'm not a stickler for the pentameter. Mm-hmm. Right, but I like to know it and you know mm-hmm. play with it and get rid of it. But right there, that heart. So what's happening in that? You know, is it Orsino's response to the heart? Is it Curio taking the time before he says the tribute, like Barton talks about in that in the uh, the BBC series about playing Shakespeare? For my dollar, it's it's the gag of the heart, and then we have eight beats. And the Duke turns it back into the love thing. Yeah, dear. Yeah, the, back to the love. You know what I mean? And we get mm-hmm. the gag out of that, you know? And so mm-hmm. the, all of these things are going on just this first page, you know? And we're learning so much about his capacity uh, for, for love and exploration um, and comedy also. Mm-hmm. And I, I like your perspective that he doesn't need to be a wilting flower. And it almost borders on a type of narcissism i mean he's very self-indulgent he's clearly used to being the center of his universe totally yeah he's got no problem with that (laughs) no (laughs) no it's his birthright it's his birthright and for our listeners who who don't know the heart spelled h-a-r-t is another word for a deer so that plays really nicely into that pun of that he's searching for love and so then he's uh, he's interrupted in his reverie, in his self-absorption, by his page or attendant named Valentine. And Shakespeare does nothing subtle with names. Every name means something. So Curio is curious. He's curious. He's asking questions of his lord. Uh, The name Orsino refers to an actual Duke Orsino who was fairly prominent at the time. And there is some theories that say that this may have been played for him at a visit, but we don't have any documentation of that. But in any event, putting a local politician or character into a play, as long as it wasn't too offensive, was often done in Shakespeare's time and not just as Shakespeare. So that's where we get the name Orsino. But Valentine... That's new information. <laughs> Congratulations. I can't believe that. Well, you know, I'm, just because we're talking about the name for a second. I mean, the those names are all so fluid and romantic and mm-hmm. the gorgeous sound of it. Olivia and Viola and Orsino. I, it sounded, I, it always felt like an intentional device to me mm. up until this point. Well, it is. <laughs> I'm sure it was for both because as we've realized that Shakespeare was a genius in terms of using the meaning of words combined with the sound of words to bring about a multi-layered effect that includes just a great deal of pleasure when you can relax and just enjoy the flow of the words washing over you. And again, you know, this is our whole purpose for 
for doing this particular podcast is because we want everybody to be able to enjoy that flow of words without thinking too much of, oh, I don't understand this. I don't know what it means. I'm not smart enough. I didn't get the right education, whatever it is. It's not, you know, remember, Shakespeare's audiences were not graduate students. <laughs> they were they were locals. They were peasants. They were people on the street. They were as much well, he, nobles. He played from the the groundling mm -hmm. to the queen. To the queen. Mm -hmm. And so these, a lot of people did not have a particularly fancy education or any education. And so often when you're doing a close reading of Shakespeare, you're realizing that he's saying the same thing in like five or sometimes 10 different ways. And this was a very practical application because they had to travel a lot. There were a lot of different dialects. People had different meanings for different words. And if you put in enough words meaning the same thing, then you're going to get your meaning across to your audience. What he could not prepare for was 400 years of language drift. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why we're here to help him out right now. So uh, Valentine shows up and he's you know, the personification of love. And Valentine has gone to plead Orsino's case with the lady Olivia, and she wouldn't even let him in. The personification of love can't even get in her front gate. Bridget, would you read Valentine's line for me? So please, my lord, I might not be admitted, but from her hand may do return this answer. The element itself, till seven years' heat, shall not behold her face at ample view, but like a cloistress she will veiled walk, and water once a day her chamber round with eye-offending brine. All this to season a brother's dead love, which she would keep fresh and lasting in her sad remembrance. So would you break that line down for us, please, Bridget? Basically, Valentine is saying that uh, Mariah, Olivia's uh, handmaid, chamberwoman, has said that Olivia is planning to mourn her brother for seven years and that in that time she will sequester herself from the world um, and not have any contact with anyone until she's finished her mourning. And this would have been really against cultural tradition in Shakespeare's time. You know, certainly some mourning would have been appropriate, but seven years for a brother is a really long time. Now, you know, she's also lost her father. She's lost her mother. She's lost her whole family. And so then suddenly she is the head of her household. She is the Lady Olivia. And we can see how this would have been appropriate to Queen Elizabeth. How Lady Olivia is a stand-in for Queen Elizabeth, who lost her mother, <laughs> lost her father, and her brother died, and then she inherited the throne. And so right away, we are seeing that Lady Olivia, in being aligned with Queen Elizabeth, is somebody that we should respect. We're getting a little knowledge aforehand that Olivia is not a lightweight. She's not ditzy, in spite of the fact that she's behaving very oddly. Mm -hmm. 
she still deserves respect. Obviously, Arsino respects her. Something to keep in mind, this is all to have taken place in the sort of mythical state of Illyria, but Illyria was a real place, and Illyria was an Islamic country at that point, and so they did have households that were divided by gender, and it would have made perfect sense for an Islamic woman of state to have a household that was completely female. And this is a way of signaling to people that we're in a different time, we're in a different place, different social roles apply. Now, something else about this all-female household is that that is what Elizabeth had to do. When Elizabeth moved in, all of those kind of court where you're in close attendance to the queen, like the groom of the stool and so on, the master of the horse, you know, all of those positions had to be rearranged. She couldn't keep all of her brothers and fathers people in those positions as they would have done. She had to bring a, a bunch of women in. And so, again, there must have been quite a few male courtiers who lost out because basically you can't have a male courtier having, you know, helping the queen with going to the potty. You've got to have another woman. And so this would have really accurately reflected Elizabeth's household and criticisms at the time that she couldn't be getting good counsel if she was just surrounded by a bunch of women all the time. So this whole setup really must have played on Elizabeth's sensibilities. It must have made her feel somewhat supported in a way that her grief was being recognized as a reason to, number one, not get married right away. You know, as, as soon as her brother died, she's got what, the king of Spain and the king of France and the king of who knows what all, you know, trying to get into her throne. And it must have been exhausting for her and very stressful. And so uh, to see this personified, even though it would have been years later in her reign, I'm sure it's something that stuck with her is that constant pressure to marry, that constant pressure to let a man take over. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Historical context there. It's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And to think that you're talking about this, you know, for the audience uh, being a contemporary play, dealing with current political uh, issues, you know, if it, like I'm watching in the audience, I'm watching mm -hmm. the current, you know, political life in this reflected in this fantastical, you know, setting in, in, in Shakespeare's new work. But, uh, you know, that's wonderful, that information. Well, it, it would have been like watching West Wing or any other, you know, contemporary political drama. And I think a lot of the comedies don't get the respect that they deserve because they were incredibly subversive. Like, you know, Shakespeare is really taking a risk with this play. And you can obviously do things with comedy as John Stewart taught us all that you cannot do with serious commentary. And, you know, of course, Festy just runs riot with this stuff, as, as is his job. <laughs> uh, 
Now, uh, one other thing that I, I do want to point out, because I, I feel like this is so important, but in Elizabeth's time, you know, the Catholics were a problem for her, and it was a constant struggle trying to figure out how to keep Catholics from assassinating her and yet not going full on, you know, auto de fe, uh, burn all the Catholics to the ground. And it was a struggle that she worked with and sometimes failed and sometimes succeeded. But as a result of this, she had very few trading partners and she desperately needed allies. She's this tiny little country in the middle of an ocean with the remains of the fleet that her daddy left behind. And she's trying to rebuild that fleet and she doesn't have any allies. Spain is either ready to, you know, what is it, kill, fuck, marry? All three, really, Spain would like to do. And what what does she do? What can she do? Well, she writes to the Ottoman Empire and asks for an alliance. And Suleiman gives it to her. And between the two of them, the, they become incredible allies. And so... All of the embroidered fabrics, all the rich spices, all of these things that we think of as being status in the Elizabethan age are coming directly from the Ottoman Empire. In return, long ago when Henry had melted down the roofs of the monasteries for lead, England had become a major arms dealer in the world. They basically took all the lead out of those stained glass windows and turned them literally into bullets and became one of the biggest arms producers. Even to this day, Britain is a major manufacturer of arms. And this alliance of Elizabeth sending the Ottomans weapons and the Ottomans sending Elizabeth pretty fabric, all these wonderful treats, gold, all of this stuff. But more importantly, the Ottoman Empire was the largest, the most powerful empire in the world. And just the fact that she was allied with them was enough to keep France and Spain and everyone else a little cautious when attacking her because they didn't want to bring down the wrath of the Ottoman Empire upon themselves. And so this, what looks like this just little la 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 farce, you know, kind of fantasy piece is really deeply political because without that alliance, there would be no British Empire. It would have been ground into the dust. So here is our character, Olivia, faithfully depicting the customs of the Ottoman Empire by having an all-female household. And Orsino's upset. He's representing this much more traditional, male-dominated, hey, I get to marry who I want to marry because I'm the guy who decides who I want to marry kind of a thing. And Olivia going, eh, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I don't need you. <laughs> Yes, but that's before, you know, the the rich golden shaft of love. Oh, yes, yes. 
<laughs> in one of the sexiest lines in Shakespeare. Yeah, go ahead and just read that whole thing. It's it's so good. Please, John. Oh, she that has a heart of that fine frame to pay this debt of love but to a brother. How will she love when a rich golden shaft hath killed the flock of all affections else that live in her? All right, I gotta stop you there. I gotta stop you there. <laughs> Who's rich golden shaft? <laughs> His rich golden shaft. He is implying that he has a dick made of gold. And if she's going to turn that down. Well, I love that, you know, just a sonnet ago, he was coalescing the vapors of, you know, rhapsodic love (laughs) and incredibly heightened language. He gets one rebuke and we're instantly in the golden shaft. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's bam. Yeah. She was ugly anyway. (laughs) I don't even like to know. And he says, has hath killed the flock of all affections else. His dick is so good that she's going to forget her own name. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. Okay. Go ahead from that live in her. Oh, all right. When liver, brain, and heart, the sovereign thrones are all supplied and filled her sweet perfections with one self king away before me to sweet beds of flowers love thoughts lie rich when canopied with bowers exudes <laughs> he's going to his bunk people who <laughs> 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 work out his feelings for olivia that he holds in his penis <laughs> so i'm getting uh, a very he, jack black vibe here yeah, you know, yeah. this would be uh has anyone done that? <laughs> <laughs> we should. We totally should. Uh, so when he says that live in her, when liver, brain, and heart, the sovereign thrones. That's so going again, back to your humorous thing. Exactly. So that, you know, people didn't think that necessarily, we these days think of the brain as being where everything happens, where all the decisions are made. But in you know, old-fashioned medical theory, the liver and the heart also had something to do with the decisions that we make. And to a sense, that's true, right? You know, if we're not feeling well, if our heart's not functioning... My, um, my liver just ruins my decisions. Just, it just, <laughs> just hates my decisions. <laughs> but basically, he's saying, when liver, brain, and heart these sovereign thrones are all supplied and filled he has so much sperm <laughs> and it's so I, great <laughs> you need to double down on that it wasn't clear enough yet <laughs> <laughs> and well, it's, it's you, amazing because you know you're, you're in this elizabethan you know mm-hmm. mode we're, we're having so many varied responses again just in we're in a page page mm-hmm. and a half here Mm-hmm. you know into this thing so and we're in this mode you know you mentioned the farcical mm-hmm. you know quality that this prelude you know is a kind of a prelude to that uh move in theater and it's, it's we're seeing all of that you know with the with the big responses and the and the gags back and forth and the you know sudden kind of scatological or get, you know getting into all of this and uh, at the same time though we're having this huge contemporary political uh illusion happening and we're we're this whole filter of you know we're on this island where you know there's an exotic quality to all of these and so and again just a page and a half we've gone through so many different 
veins that are, and they're all just sewn together so well here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a, a page and a half of masterful exposition. Exactly. You know, Shakespeare introduces us to Arsino. He introduces us to Arsino's problems. He does this by providing attendance that not only give us the exposition, but confirm for us what Orsino's status is. It's an incredible opening scene. And you describe that hurdle that's coming up with Olivia. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like the, the gong in the beginning of the, of the play, you know, saying, okay, this is the thing that we're going to be dealing mm -hmm. with that he wants to overcome. You know, this is our, this is our mountain. Sometimes I see scene two presented before scene one. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll get into scene two in just a second, but I, I personally, I think that's a mistake. And let me just say for the record, I think that anybody who produces Shakespeare is wonderful and I love you and please keep doing it. And if you want to do scene two before scene one, you know, more power to you. I support you. All that said, I wouldn't do it because it has all this fantastic exposition in it. And it allows you to have, first of all, the beautiful music playing as the audience is coming in and sitting down. It becomes very immersive in that the audience becomes Orsino's courtiers. We're Completely. all right there with Orsino listening to the same music, watching our leader wax romantic <laughs> well and as he explores something we are too and it gives us a foot into the mm -hmm. play you know the fantastical elements of shipwreck and lost island and you know the girl on the beach and mm -hmm. all this kind of you know uh more shakespearean love era stuff um it's very tempting to get into that and really ring that out in production i can tell you you know oh yeah from my experience but um but you're well let's let's talk about that Let's talk about that without giving too many spoilers if we can. We've left Orsino. We go into next scene on a beach with the shipwreck. And we'll do that now. Hmm. <laughs>